Psalm number 5 this evening is where we'll be. Psalm number 5. And we will be talking about that refuge in a time of storm that we just sang about. There is um, a great and uh, powerful thing about God's holiness. There's a great amount of terror that's involved when you think about God's holiness, but also a great beauty. The terror of God's holiness is is the fact that we don't want to be on the wrong side of God's holiness. The fact that He is a God who is holy. We want to make sure that we are counted as righteous. We know that on our own we can't stand as righteous. We have to stand on the the merits of someone else, on the merits of Jesus Christ. And um, so on the wrong side of His holiness, we ought to be fearful and, and condemned and worthy of death because of our sin because we know that God cannot stand sin. But there's also a beauty of God's holiness. And uh, once we've crossed over that threshold where we are fearful and recognize that, that we are under His condemnation, we cross over on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we have access to His presence. And in His presence, His holiness is, yes, it is a fearful thing. Even Isaiah recognized that and Chapter 6, when he, he recognizes his own sin. But at the same time, it's also a beautiful thing in that it's a place for us to run and hide, to, to take refuge in the holiness of God, knowing that He will come down on the evil that is in this world. He will uh, do away with sin and evil fully and finally and in His holiness, on the right side of God's holiness, we are recipients of His mercy and grace. We've come to the fifth psalm here in this collection of psalms. And again, for the third time in a row, we have an individual lament. Where here, David again, uh, just like the last two, cries out to God because of some sort of sorrow, some sort of trouble that he is facing, and as I've said, with each of these laments, as you come across, about half of the Psalms are laments, by the way. Some are individual laments. Some of, some of them are whole nation, uh, for whole nations, national laments. But in every lament, what you're going to find is that it begins with a cry out to God because of some trouble, a description of that trouble, and then it always ends with some sort of turning in trust to God as our refuge. The, the sorrow turns to, to trust. The mourning turns to, to confidence and commitment to God. And we're going to see that again in this fifth psalm. So let's read that together. I'll read out loud. You follow along. Psalm number 5, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. 
At your holy temple I will bow in reverence for you. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. And the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against You. Let all who take refuge in You be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may may You shelter them, that those who love Your name may exalt in You. For it is You who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. When there is a threat against us from the wicked, we can confidently find refuge in God because God is a holy God. When there's a threat of wickedness against us, we can confidently find refuge in God because God is a holy God. He does not take pleasure in wickedness. But rather, He loves what is good. He is a God of loving kindness. And this is what David sees. If you look at the superscription of the psalm before verse 1, it says, for the choir director, for flute accompaniment, a psalm of David. As I mentioned before, these superscriptions are not inspired. They're not in the original text. But they're probably trustworthy. Okay, So I don't think we need to, to eliminate them. I think that's why a lot of our translations include them. In fact, I don't know of a translation that doesn't include them. And, uh, and so we should take these as, as truth but not inspired. So, Psalm of David, at a time when David was struggling. David was at a time of trouble and he felt in the, the, the conflict of the wickedness that was all around him. And what David does is he goes to God in prayer confidently knowing that God is a good God and that He hates evil. And he finds his refuge there in God. We can confidently find refuge in God by talking to Him in prayer. David is going to talk about why he is so much in distress here in the middle of the psalm, but he actually begins with some confidence here, doesn't he, in verses 1-3. through He confidently finds refuge in God by talking to Him in prayer. Notice the parallelism in verses 1 and 2. He says, give ear. And then the next line, consider. And then the next line, verse 2, heed. Okay, so he has three appeals to God. Give, hear, consider, and heed. Listen to me, God, as I speak. And what is he speaking about? Well, he he gives a cry for help in each of these lines. Look again, verse 1. Give ear to my words. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help. So, he has a plea. Listen to me. Listen to the cry that I have toward you. And then notice he addresses God in nearly every line as well. Give ear to my words, O Lord. And then verse 2, Hear the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. David is essentially saying, God, I trust You. And that's why I'm turning to You in prayer. I trust that You are a good God and that You are the one who's going to take care of this situation. So that's why I'm turning to You. His confidence is seen in verse 3 further says, in the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Notice the, the progression in this verse. In verse, the first part of the verse, he says, 
you will hear my voice. I know, God, that you will hear me. Why? Or, or what's going to happen as a result of, of me and my confidence in you? The second part of the verse tells us, in the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Now, if you look in your translation there, at least in the New American Standard, it gives some words in italics, which just means that those words are not in the original. They weren't translated from the original, but supplied by the translators to help fill in some blanks. Because otherwise it would read like this. Second part of verse 3, In the morning I will order to you and watch. Okay, so the, the translators, based on the context and based on the structure of the passage, supply some words that they believe are uh, applicable to, to what David is saying, that you understand if you've ever taken a language that there is no such thing as a one-for-one one translation. And so we can't just take words and woodenly translate them one, from one language, Hebrew here, to English. But rather there's a thought, there's an idea that has to come across. And so what the New American Standard is showing us is that there's, there's not a Hebrew word for my prayer in Psalm number 5. So that's why some other translations have taken the object of order. See that? In the morning I will order. What will you order, David? Well, the New American Standard says my prayer. Other translations take it as sacrifices. I will order my sacrifices to you. But if you think about it in the context about what David is talking about, prayer does seem to make the most sense. Because in the first two verses, and then later on in the passage, he's talking about his prayers to God. There doesn't seem to be any mention of sacrifices, and so it would be kind of peculiar for him to be thinking about sacrifices at this point. And so we learn something right at the beginning of this psalm that is helpful for us, and that is that, that David goes to God when his heart is troubled. David goes to God when his heart is troubled. You see, he's going to God, not to men. It's a good principle to live by. To go when you, when you are in times of trouble. Go to God. My pastor growing up used to say, bad news up, good news down. And uh, there's a lot of, of ways in which I think he would qualify that just to, to make it clear. That it's not that we shouldn't say good things to God, but... The point I think he was making is that we tend to be the opposite way. We tend to spread all the bad news and then only talk to God about things that we want or good things that are going on in our lives. And, and what he, his suggestion was is we need to cut down on spreading all the bad news. The gossip tend, turns out to be generally. Talk to God about those things and, uh, and, and, and proclaim His praises among the people. Good news down. That's the... That's the idea. And this is what David does. In times of trouble, he's not going around commiserating with other people, trying to get people to feel sorry for him or to complain about life like we so often tend to do. David goes to God in times of trouble. This is a good example for us to follow. In times of trouble, we go to God. In verses 4-7, through seven, we see that we can confidently find refuge in God because He delights in righteousness. In times of trouble, we go to God, verses 1-3, through and when we go to God, we confidently find refuge in Him because He delights in righteousness. Now, if we were to read through this section again, in fact, verses 4-6, through it doesn't sound like God is a God of righteousness here. It just sounds like He's a God who hates evil. 
sounds very negative. Notice verse 4. You are not a God who... The end of verse 4. No evil dwells in you. Verse 5. The boastful shall not stand. The end of verse 5. You hate all who do iniquity. Verse 6. You destroy those. The end of verse 6. The Lord abhors the man. So it's, it doesn't sound like God is a God of righteousness. But if you go to verse 7, you see that this is really a summary of verses 4-6. through six. Notice verse 7. But as for me, by your abundant Loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. God's holiness can be expressed in two ways. One is that He loves righteousness. That's what verse 7 is talking about. And the other way is that He hates evil. Verses 4 through 6. So, really, those go together, don't they? Verses 4 through 7 is one section that David's talking about. I go to you for refuge, and I find confidence in that refuge because you are a God who loves righteousness. You're not going to turn me away as if you hated evil. So David in this, in this section highlights God's love for righteousness. And the first way that he highlights God's love for righteousness is by showing God's hatred of evil. God's hatred of evil, verses 4-6. through six. If God is a God who loves righteousness, if He is a holy God, then He must hate evil. And the reason that this is important is because David, in the midst of his trial, that he's going to explain to us here in just a second what it is, in the midst of his trial, he could be easily tempted to think that God has allowed the evil into David's life because God somehow loved evil. God somehow didn't care about the evil that was all around David and within. And we can get that same mentality too. And so it's important for us to understand that God is a a lover of holiness because He is holy. And He does hate evil. And going to God as our refuge is actually a good thing because He does love righteousness. Has your mind ever wondered away from the truth of Scripture. You know, with all this evil in my life and the lives of the people around me and in this world, maybe God doesn't care. Maybe He actually takes a bit of pleasure in evil. And it's at these times that we need to be reminded of texts like this that point us to God's utter hatred of evil and His, and His complete holiness, His complete love for righteousness. This is our God. And it it doesn't come much clearer than it does in these verses. Look at the text here in verse 4. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness or takes delight. Turn back to Psalm number 1 and verse 2 because we saw this same word but used in a different way. Psalm number 1, verse 2. Remember, we're comparing the, the... the uh, person who is godly, righteous, with the person who is wicked. Verse 2 of Psalm number 1, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That is, the righteous person takes his pleasure in the Word of God, in the law of God. He takes his pleasure. Now look back to Psalm number 5, verse 4. You are not a God who takes delight or takes pleasure in wickedness. We can never... 
allow ourselves to think that God ever takes pleasure in the wickedness that is in our lives. We need to remind ourselves of God's utter purity so that we do not stray in our minds away to a wrong understanding of God. 1 John 1.5 God is light. And in Him there is no what? There's no darkness at all. God is pure. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities, transgressions, and sins, yet He will by no means He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4, For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. He is righteous and upright. Habakkuk 1, 13, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil with favor. God is a righteous God. He is a pure God. He loves holiness. He hates evil. David makes that point very clear as he calls out to God as his refuge. The result of God's love for righteousness and hatred of evil is found in verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. The result of God's displeasure for evil is that He is a righteous judge. Because God doesn't take pleasure in evil, that poses a problem for those who are evil, doesn't it? The first part of verse 5 says that they can't take their stand before God. Picture yourself standing before the Almighty Holy God unclothed before Him. Not clothed in Christ's righteousness. How do you stand before Him? You stand condemned and and, uh, deserving of God's wrath. Because God hates evil, evil has to be punished. And David even goes one step further in saying in the second part of verse 5, you hate all who do iniquity. If you've been a Christian for a long time, I've heard you. I'm sure you've heard the statement, "God hates the sinner." Uh, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. God hates the sin, but He loves the sinner. So when we have an evil person, we kind of separate the sin from the sinner. And that's a cute saying, and it helps minimize the blow of God's wrath on evil. We might like to think about God that way, but that is not from the Bible. Look at the second part of verse 5 and the second part of verse 6 and try to think about that phrase that I just said in terms of what the text of Scripture says. You, God, hate all who do iniquity. It doesn't say you hate iniquity of all those who do it. You hate all who do iniquity. And then the second part of verse 6, the Lord abhors the man of bloodshed. He hates the man of bloodshed and deceit. So from this text of Scripture, can we say that God hates the sin and loves the sinner? No, instead we would say God hates the sin and the sinner. And that's why throughout all of eternity, it will not be sin that is punished alone, will it? But sinners. 
they personally are under the just wrath of God. Now that is a truth, I admit, that is very hard to swallow, especially because we like to think of God as a jolly old grandfather-like type figure. But there's a great danger in thinking of God only in terms of His affection. As if He can separate the sin from the sinner. And say, I will take you and just hold you and cuddle you. It's okay. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Because I don't want you to misunderstand me. This is a hard truth that God does hate the sinner. But at the same time, there is a sense in which He both loves and hates unbelievers uh, at the same time. He, he hates the unbeliever and loves him at the same time. And, and this is not pictured more clearly than in our own relationship to God before we came to Christ. Okay, So I want you to put yourself in, uh, I guess, your own shoes before you came to Christ. Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us. Notice, when did He demonstrate His love toward us? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so while we were sinners, it's true, David says God hated us. He hated us because of our sin, but there's also a sense in which Christ died for us and that was the best display of God's love, wasn't it? So in that sense, God both hates and loves us at the same time prior to our salvation. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we see this very similarly. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll start with verse 1 one of the great passages that help us see our former condition. And you, Ephesians 2.1, were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And then notice this phrase, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So there's a picture of God's hatred for us as sinners specifically. Not just for our sin, but for us. But then notice verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead. So even when we were dead, even when we were under His wrath, even when we were the objects of His wrath, the objects of His hatred, God loved us. And how did He love us? Well, most specifically, it is when Christ was sent to die for us. But then, uh, in our lives, obviously Christ's death was long before we were born, so for us, it, would act, it was actually when God displayed that love on us. He, he actually presented the truth of the Gospel to us. Turn back to Psalm number 5. Psalm number 5. So, it is true that God loves us while we are sinners. We don't want to minimize that. We don't want to reject that truth. But, 
our tendency is not to minimize God's love for us. We tend to highlight God's squishy love and minimize His judgment as if we had something beautiful in us that God would love. We, we don't think of ourselves as spiritually dead before we came to Christ, but spiritually sick or with a lot of spiritual potential. And yet the Scriptures speak us, of us as spiritually dead objects of God's wrath. We think of ourselves maybe as garbage, yes, but as I've mentioned before, maybe like that, that orange peel that has just been peeled. Yes, it's garbage, but it's kind of sweet-smelling garbage. And, you know, it's kind of a pleasure to have that in our presence. It's got a nice aroma to it. That's how we see ourselves before we came to Christ, that God just kind of loved us up so much. But rather, it is that we were as pitiful as the worst sinners on the earth in the sight of God because of our sin, and God hated us. And until we see that, we don't see the, the real beauty of God's love for us. And He loved us in spite of us, not because of us. And Ephesians 2 bears that out. If we were to go farther in Ephesians 2, we've looked at this passage, but we would see that it was by grace that we've been saved, not through works, not because we were some beautiful object that God wanted to restore, but rather it was all of His mercy. And when we properly understand God's hatred for sin, His hatred for evil, His hatred for sinners, it should actually raise the level of our appreciation for God and what He has done for us. Despite God's utter hatred of sin and evil and sinners, He loved us enough to expose His Son to the temptation of sin and the punishment of evil so that we could be freed from it. Despite God's utter hatred for sin and sinners, He loved us enough to expose His Son to temptation and the punishment of evil so that we could be freed from both of those things. That is God's love for you. And when you understand God's hatred for you as a sinner before you came to Christ, you marvel in His love, don't you? He would do something like that for you. Look at verse 7. David highlights God's loving kindness here. He's talked about God's hatred for evil, verses 4-6. through Now he shows that this really is in compatibility with his loving kindness. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house at your holy temple. I will bow in reverence for you. David, in times of trouble, goes confidently to God as his refuge. Why can David do that? Because David understands, and we must understand that the basis of our coming to God is grounded in God's love. His steadfast love. Okay, Think about those sinners in verses 4-6. through six. They come to God on the basis of what they have done and they stand condemned and hated by God. But we come, to the ba- we come to God on the basis of not on what we have done, but on the basis of God's love, what God has done. He says, as for me, here's what I'm going to do. They may come to you on the basis of something else, but I come to you on the basis of your loving kindness, O God. And as a result, the second part of verse 7, I will enter your house, your holy temple. Now keep in mind that there was no temple during the life of David. Remember, David wanted to build a temple 
He wanted to build a house for God. And God said, no, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. Speaking of a lineage, a line that will never end. And Solomon's going to be the one that builds my house. Your son, David, is going to do that. So when David says, at your holy temple, don't think of the actual temple that's there in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. No, this is probably referring to the tabernacle. It was referred to that way as God's holy place, God's holy dwelling place. Think of, think of it that way, God's holy dwelling place, the tabernacle. That's probably the, the image that David had in his mind. But the point is that he wants to go to the place where God's special presence resides. And here's another amazing thing about our God. That God welcomes believers into His presence. God welcomes believers into His presence, although we are far from perfect. And we are just as deserving of His wrath as anyone else. On the basis of Jesus Christ's finished work, we can go to God. We can go to His presence. And there should be a sense of reverence. But at the same time, we should also have a sense of joy and pleasure going into the presence of God like a child would go before the presence of his father who is the President of the United States, for example. Yes, there is great honor and respect that goes along with that office, but the child can go to his father or her father and say, Father, I have a need. I want to come into your presence. I don't have to set up a meeting for it. There's refuge in our Father. and God wants us to come to Him. Verses 8-12, through we find that those who find refuge in God will be delivered. Those who find refuge in God will be delivered. David is in a time of trouble in his life and he goes to God through prayer because he he knows that God loves righteousness and abhors evil. He hates the evil that's all around and within you. And when you go to God, when you find your refuge in Him, He will deliver you. The deliverance may not come in the way that we want it, right? We have an idea of how God will deliver us, but ultimate deliverance comes through God. Notice first in verse 8 that there is refuge on God's path. There is refuge on God's path. O Lord, lead me in Your righteousness because of my foes. Make Your way straight before me. David here recognizes that God is ultimately the one that leads him, but at the same time, he recognizes his own responsibility to walk down that path. This is what Jerry Bridges calls calls dependent responsibility. That is, we depend on God knowing that He is the one who ultimately leads us, that charges us, that gives us the strength to do this, but we also have a sense of responsibility knowing that God works through means. David's saying, lead me in the righteousness that you require of me, O God, and and make my paths straight. If you look in the margin of your Bible in verse 8, you should see an alternate translation for the word straight. And in mine, it, it is smooth. You will make your paths smooth. This is the same idea that we come across in, in Proverbs Chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings in all your way. Acknowledge Him and He will make your paths 
straight or smooth. It's going to be the best path that you possibly can go down. It's not that it's going to be free from trial, right? It's not that it's going to be uh, free from sorrow, but it's ultimately the best path. We make our paths harder when we turn away towards sin and unrighteousness. And what David is saying is, the righteousness that you want me to, to, to do, the righteousness, the righteous life that you want me to live, lead me that way. Lead me that way. There is refuge on God's path. Secondly, there is refuge from the rebellious. Verses 9 and 10. Here is where we really see David's trouble. Verse 9, there is nothing reliable in what they say his enemies their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They're, they flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God, by their own devices. Let them fall in the multitude of their transgressions. Thrust them out, for they are, they are rebellious against You. When David goes to God because of his trouble, he goes to God confidently in prayer, knowing that God is a good God who loves holiness, who hates evil. He finds refuge in following the path of God and he finds refuge from those who oppose him, the rebellious. Notice the focus on the words of the enemies that are really uh, attacking David, that they are accusatory towards David. There is nothing reliable that they say. And then a couple lines down, their throat is an open grave. And then the next line, they flatter with their tongue. If David's enemies were to stand before the Almighty Judge and the Almighty Knower of hearts, how well would their words hold up in that court before the living God? David is saying their words are evidence of the evil that is within their hearts. And because of their words, David is troubled. He finds it difficult to stand before God. He finds it difficult to follow God. Are you familiar with these temptations that David is facing? Have you been tempted to go down the path of evil? To condone evil instead of standing for the truth? Have you been tempted to turn away from God and follow some seemingly prosperous path which ultimately leads to destruction? David's prayer is, God, don't allow my heart to turn that way. I know myself. I know my frame, how weak I am. I want to find refuge in You and, and I don't want to find refuge in those who oppose You. So help me, O God. He prays for judgment to be called down upon them. Verse 10, Hold them, o guilt, hold them guilty, O God, by their own devices. Let them fall. And the multitudes of their transgressions thrust them out. They are rebellious against You. David can pray such with such confidence because these enemies are not just enemies of his, that is, enemies of David. Notice the last line of verse ten, for they are rebellious against they are rebellious against you. David is calling down judgment on his enemies, who are ultimately enemies of God. Now, what about these imprecatory prayers, these prayers of judgment? I mentioned this quickly in a previous passage or previous sermon on the Psalms. But should we be praying for judgment upon our enemies? 
Listen to Alan Ross on this. He says, David was not asking anything against God's will or God's desire. Remember, David was the theocratic king. That is, he's the God-anointed king over God's people. He was simply asking God to bring about the judgment that was already planned for them. But he was praying that it would come sooner. When we pray for deliverance from our enemies, it may mean the physical removal of our enemies. You see, the difference between David and his enemies is that David found his refuge and pledged his allegiance to God while they did not. And so what he wanted to see was for judgment to fall on those who were opposing God. That judgment was going to happen. And David was just praying that it happens sooner. And I can tell you that when you pray to God to remove your enemies from you, that it may be answered in such a way that God brings down judgment on their lives physically. A Christian couple, um, I just was told recently by a friend, was trying to get a, get custody of two young kids. And there was a social worker involved. And the social worker would come to their house and find out uh, their lifestyle and so on. And then we'd go to the mother's house, but the mother was very negligent with the children, would often pass them off to other people, be gone for weeks at a time without even seeing her children. The father was completely out of the picture, and so this couple wanted to take these children in and adopt them for themselves. And they couldn't get the social worker to budge in front of the court. They got to a place where the judge was about to make a decision and the, the Christian couple decided that they would like this to go to a different court. If he was going to, to judge um, against them in favor of the mother, then they wanted to see if they could appeal it to a different court before it got to a place where it was final. And so during that time of transition to another court, the couple began praying that they could get a different social worker You'll never guess what happened to the social worker. She died. And the couple told my friend, we were not praying for that. We were not praying for her to die. We just wanted a different social worker. Okay, but what I'm trying to show you is that when we pray positively to be removed from our enemies, God may bring down the judgment that those people already deserve and that they will receive eventually anyway. He just might bring it down sooner. That deliverance from the enemies can possibly mean their death. And so David is praying, remove me from these enemies. Bring down the judgment that they deserve. Obviously, we need to be careful how we pray this because Jesus obviously taught us to love our enemies. And that's why we take these sorts of things that are really, in our minds, conundrums. How do we sort all this out. How do I pray for my enemies? We take them and we entrust them to God. Here you go, God. I don't know what to do here. I don't know what the best outcome would be for these enemies of mine. These enemies of yours. I don't know what the best... So I'm going to give it over to you. I'm taking refuge in you and I'm trusting you to do the right thing because you are God who loves holiness and hates evil. And when we find our refuge in God, verses 11 and 12, we will find joy. There's refuge on God's path. There's refuge from the rebellious. 
And then verses 11 and 12, this refuge will bring joy. Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy and may you shelter them that those who love your name may exalt in you for it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. When we find refuge in God, we receive favor from God. That's why I say those who confidently find their refuge in God will be delivered from their enemies. You may not be delivered right away. You may not be delivered in your timing, but you will receive the favor of God. God is showing His favor to all those who are humble. If you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, He will lift you up. But God opposes the proud. One of the great ways to show our humility and our shedding of pride is to go to God. To go to God is our refuge. And notice how God's favor is toward us in verse 12. It is like a shield. The end of the verse says, you surround Him, that is those who trust in you, who go to you and for refuge, you surround Him with favor as with a shield. Don't you want God's favor to be like that for you? Don't you want God's favor to be like a shield around you to protect you from all of those who oppose you? Then be like David. You find your refuge in God through prayer. Here's what finding refuge in God through prayer looks like. When the pressures of evil things and evil people are severe and seemingly unbearable, pray to God. That's what refuge looks like. And based on what you know of God and what you know of His character, tell Him what you think He ought to do. And then step back and trust Him and say, God, this is all You. I can't change the situation. I'm going to leave it to You. God, this is what I know of You. This is what I know of what You've done in the past. I know You can work. And this is what I think You ought to do. But ultimately, I trust You, God. And I'm taking refuge in You. Do you remember when the enemies of Jesus were increasing the pressure upon Him to give up? What did He do? There at Gethsemane. But trust entrust himself to God. He spent the night praying. And if Jesus was compelled to do this, how much more ought we to entrust ourselves to God in times of trouble? And at the times of heavy onslaught of temptation, how much more ought we who are prone to temptation and to giving into it ought to go to God? Do you believe that God is a good God? Do you believe that He is a God of loving kindness and holiness? Do you believe that He cares? Do you believe that He hates the evil that's going on in your life and all around you and that's opposing you? Do you believe that God wants you to find your refuge in Him? Then, Christian, turn to Him. Run to Him. Pray to Him. Watch how He delivers you from all of your trouble. Because God is righteous. He will defend you. He will be your refuge. Take refuge in Him, believer. Take refuge in Him and let Him do the rest. Let's pray. In times of trouble, O Lord, help us to come to You. Perhaps there are those in our congregation, even this night, who are walking through some deep 
trouble, deep trial even now. May use this as a source of encouragement. The text of Scripture to help encourage them and show them that you are a good God who loves holiness and who hates evil. And that you want your children to come to you in times of trouble and find refuge in you. Oh Lord, we admit that we don't come to you nearly enough. We love to try to solve our own problems. We love to to either ignore them or to try to take care of them ourselves. And usually the last thing we do is to go to You. And we acknowledge that and, and ask for You to forgive us of that. We know that You are a faithful God. We've seen You work in our lives. We've seen You work in the lives of the, the great men and women of Scripture like David here. We've seen You... Rescue them from their trouble. Why would You not rescue us from ours? Oh, our lives might end in death, but that's actually a victory because we have overcome. Oh, the trials may not go away, but You can use trials to strengthen us. You can use trials to help reveal our faith to ourselves and people around us. So, we don't ask for trials but we know that You will allow us to walk through some of those to show Yourself strong in us. Because when we are weak, You are strong. Remove us from temptation. Help us to see the great joy that there is in finding refuge in You. And that there is no real refuge in following the path of evil. Turn us, we pray. Toward you. Help us to run to Christ, to run to you often. You are our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we won't fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be cast into the sea, to the sea. Though the waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling, there is a river, the streams whereof make glad city of God, a holy place. We want to go there, find refuge in You. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.